There's a pile of them outside. There we go. We apologize for the uh, delayed start tonight, but we promise to give you uh, all the time that you committed and then some. And as Rudyard Kipling said, we'll forget, we'll fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run. In the two, the twin Psalms that open the Psalter, the, the book of Psalms, you have two ways. We often share those two ways, and especially in the time when we're talking about Messianic prophecy, the, the two ways of the nations. Why are the nations in an uproar, and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The master scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them with his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And then, of course, that king speaks. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You're my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. And now for application. Therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence or rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word and the impartation it provides for us of wisdom about ourselves, our lives, the times in which we live, what it's all about. Let's take a moment for silent prayer. Make sure we're in fellowship with God. We will open the word tonight in Isaiah chapter 26. Let's pray. Father, everything we have, everything we are, is because you are gracious to us with that common grace of creation making us in your image, causing the rain and the sunshine uh, to fall on the righteous and the wicked alike. Father, we have everything that we have because of you. Thank you that you've blessed us beyond our wildest imaginations by putting us into union with Christ through the Holy Spirit and for the privilege we have to know you through what you've said. Father, we want to lay hold of you. You've promised us through the Apostle James or through the writer James that if we would draw near to you, you would draw near to us. And we claim that, Father, we ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 26 and verse 19 tonight. If you have a, a note sheet, don't, uh, don't look and see if you're in the right building. Of course, we, uh, I always want to provide such, such a thing, but we're going to dial in or actually zoom out on, on the summary in the Old Testament of the biblical doctrine of the res- resurrection. We're focusing in on the doctrine of the resurrection, which I think is a very important thing to do, to be able to do at any given time. We're going to summarize what the Old Testament says about it tonight and over the next probably several visits. These notes will grow, and I'll keep handing out more leaves as, we, as, those, as they do grow. So that last sheet, and it kind of came on three t- tonight, that, that last one's going to get replaced so don't worry about it. But, and we won't get through all of that tonight, but 
This is how the Old Testament teaches the promise of the resurrection, how it shows up in prophecy. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because, of course, Isaiah chapter 26, verse 19. In the New American Standard, the, the most literal uh, word-for-word English translation, I still contend, the 1995 edition, I would not recommend the 2020 update, just the 95. He says, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn, and the earth will give birth to the departed spirits, the Rephaim. This prophecy is, as your notes indicate, the clearest statement in the Old Testament, according to most evangelical scholars, of the resurrection, the promise of resurrection. One uh, Bible's footnote, the New English Translation Bible footnote, that uh, work of Dallas Seminary, and I disagree with what they say. They say this is the only clear reference that's undisputed to resurrection in the Old Testament. I'll show you many Uh, references in the Old Testament in this study, as you can kind of scan through with your notes. And I'm not in a hurry to get through the material, but let me summarize what we're doing. There is arguably no more important doctrine to our destiny than the doctrine of the resurrection in the New Testament. Now you can talk about theology and its importance. Well, more important that we know God, right, than his work of giving us the promise of resurrection. We could reason through all the different categories of systematic theology. What I'm saying is day to day, life circumstance by life circumstance, there's no important, more important thing than God's promise of resurrection, which is vouchsafed to us by the actual already accomplished resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first fruits of the resurrection, the one and the only one who's already been transformed into an eternal body that inherits eternity. The only human being who's ever been resurrected in the sense that we're talking about. I know the dead have raised, walked, and so forth, but no one has been resurrected like the transformation of this body into a body that receives glorification except Jesus Christ. And that fact is your position. You're in Christ, glorified with him, and it's also securing your destiny. You will be glorified in your physical body in resurrection. And that is what is coming for you before you know it. That is your destiny and my destiny before we know it. And that little truth needs to hang in our perspective, kind of like in the back of our mind, And sometimes we pull it to the forefront of our mind as we go through this life, as we encounter the challenges that we encounter, as we deal with the day-to-day, that doctrine of resurrection is so very important. The resurrection is the answer to all disappointments. The resurrection is the answer to all hazards and challenges and risks and threats to your life and your safety. It's the answer to the fear of loss that we face in every aspect of life where there is a chance or an opportunity for loss. In fact, most of our anxiety and fear, I contend, is fear of loss, fear of not getting what we might otherwise have, fear of not retaining what we already have attained, fear of missing out on a relationship in some way or another. It's always going to boil down in some poignant possibly knife-twisting sort of way, a fear of loss. The resurrection answers that. There is no loss of inheritance in an eternal body receiving the inheritance of eternity. There is no loss of all things because Jesus Christ is the heir of all things and we're co-heirs with him according to Romans chapter 8. And so what we're saying is this doctrine is so important. It's not on our minds. We in the throes of life, in the details of our circumstance, sometimes we'll think of resurrection as this pie in the sky thing. Oh yeah, whatever. And we're not in 
enjoying this promise and resting in the certainty of what God has told us he would do. And that will be a mistake and it will render us very, very powerless, very hopeless, very needful of the joy of our salvation, but not enjoying that, that joy, that sense of security. And so I want to emphasize the doctrine of resurrection when the most famous Old Testament verse comes up in our study. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to work through the way the Old Testament teaches it and the way we need to see it. And I'm going to differ with all my heart with my brothers in Christ who would teach that this is the only verse that directly addresses it. It shows up in several places and not as many as I would imagine. And so I'd like to get into it and and study in a somewhat systematic way. And one thing I would like to say is I'd like for you in a broad sense, to be able to reproduce what we're going to do in this study. I'd like for you to say, well, we started with Isaiah 26, 19, that verse that said there's going to be this resurrection. And then go to the New Testament where Jesus rebukes the people that should know the Old Testament scriptures and says you should know about the resurrection when he talks to the Sadducees. And then you could go to how Peter and Paul in their preaching will both use Psalm 16, uh, 10 to to prove that David couldn't have been talking about himself. He had to be talking about Jesus when they're preaching the resurrection of Christ and what that means for the world in their various ministries in Acts. That you could say, okay, the New Testament is insisting that God through the Old Testament prophets is prophesying resurrection in the Old Testament. Notice what we're saying. Does the Old Testament teach the resurrection? In what sense should we expect it is the big question on bullet number one. And, and we should be able to walk, if I'm faithful, the conclusion tonight, if I'm faithful to the New Testament, then I, yes, I will absolutely insist that the Old Testament must teach the resurrection because Jesus did. Jesus said, if you don't see the resurrection, uh, Israelites, you're unbelieving. You don't believe the scriptures. You don't know what they're saying. You're not paying attention. And he does that on the road to Emmaus. He does that to the, to the disciples. He does that with the Sadducees. And so I'd like for you to be able to start with the New Testament. We believe in Jesus. We believe what Jesus said. We think Jesus reads the Old Testament correctly. And based on that New Testament testimony, we should be equipped and encouraged to go back in Christ to the Old Testament and not read Jesus into it, but read it as he read it. And then from that perspective, we should see several places that show us the resurrection in two key ways. And this is the summary of the whole thing. He shows us through the Old Testament a resurrection by implication. You can only conclude resurrection. There's only, that's the only way this could happen is resurrection. It's an implication, which is the most common way it's taught. And like, for example, Abrahamic covenant, God said he's going to give Abraham the land and Abraham never received the land. The land is a physical place on earth. It can't mean uh, in your heart. It can't mean in heaven. It has to be uh, the earth and then the new heavens and new earth. So how does Abraham receive the land if he never got it in his life? See, that re- that's an implication. There has to be a resurrection. That's, that's the doctrine of resurrection in the Old Testament by implication. The other way is by direct statement, like right here, Isaiah 26, 19. The dead will live. Their corpses will rise. You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy. This is not just figurative language about something special that's going to happen uh, because spiritually because people are really sad and then they become really happy. They were as if dead, but then their, their, their hearts are cheered. No, this is saying that there are dead people that are going to rise from the dead. Now, let's talk about culture while we're thinking about this. 
We have this in our culture. It's a pop culture feature, just like the coming of Christ, our blessed hope for his body, for the church. The way popular culture teaches this is that it's a bad thing when the people suddenly disappear. The way pop culture talks about the rapture is the bad guys do it to the good guys. That it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a, an oppression of people. Marvel Universe does it this way. All the alien abduction stuff that you got these aliens and all of a sudden they snatch you up and you disappear. Right? That's all preparation, I contend. It's, it's propaganda. And it's preparation for when this event happens for there to be some sort of naturalistic explanation for what happened. It's got to be outside supernatural forces. Perhaps we'll just say aliens. There was this mass disappearance. And, um, uh, you know, just like they showed in Marvel Comics Universe or just like they showed uh, in all the alien abductions. See, God's blessing, our blessed hope, is a bad thing the way the popular culture presents it. Don't think for a second the Satan who has blinded the hearts of the unbelieving and deceived the nations is not alive and well and working hard in all the media today. Of course he is. And of course the deception is strong. And, and guess what happens with this with the kids? They get an emotional attachment to a certain thought process about these things. When you get abducted, you get caught up. That's a bad thing. It's a negative connotation, negative association. But actually for us, it's going to be the first time the entire body of Christ assembles together. It's going to be magnificent. It's going to be the most wonderful thing. And I, I love that the word rapture, the word rapture has come in English to mean an emotionally ecstatic uh, moment of, of, uh, of, of, of just joy and bliss. That's what the word rapture, to be enraptured, right? But that's not where it comes from. The word rapto, where we get the word raptor, to catch up. Rapto, it's Latin, and it comes from uh, the, he, the Greek word in First uh, Thessalonians 4. It says um, in verse 13, we will be caught up. Caught up in harpazo. And so it gets translated in Latin as rapto, and then somebody says that's going to, we'll call that the rapture, what, what's going on there in the text. And so this blissful moment of the assembly of the body of Christ for the first time in world history. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The one that we long to see, we're going to see face to face. That generation of believers that is caught up, they're going to see him face to face for the first time in their resurrection body. We're going to, these people will be translated into the resurrection body as they go up. And that is the, the, the moment of the resurrection of the church, of the body of Christ to be with our Savior. And so will we ever be with the Lord. And that is the most wonderful thing that's ever going to happen on planet earth uh, at the, today. When that happens, it'll be the most wonderful thing that's ever happened. And it's been the clouds within the atmosphere of planet earth. And, that, and, and it's, it's going to happen. All right. The, the, the pop culture says it's bad. It's bad if you disappear. If, the, if, if death himself snaps his finger and half the population disappears. If, um, if the aliens abduct you and take you away from your mama. All right. So what do they do with the resurrection? What do they do with the resurrection? Evil dead. Army of darkness. Walking dead. Day of the dead. Night of the living dead. When people rise up from the dead, it's not to eternal life and resurrection bodies in glory, glorified in Christ, as we've been taught by the Apostle Paul now for 2,000 years and by Isaiah for 2,700 years and by Moses for 3,000 years, right? It's not that, or 3,500 years. It's not good news. It's zombies that want to eat you. 
They want to turn you into one of them, and, and they're going to get you, and the whole world is against you, and the whole theory of somebody that has died and risen. Okay, well, no, no, they're not zombies. Let's go back a little before, before that became a pop culture thing. And what was the other thing that would happen if somebody died and then they rose? Nosferatu, Dracula, the monsters that want to suck your blood and uh, enslave you in some sort of spiritual enslavement, um, as, uh, as Bram Stoker told the story. See, pop culture knows about people that rise from the dead, but it's always bad. Maybe I'm being a little universal by, by saying always, but let me tell you about the two things that are connected, that are sensational things that God has said we're supposed to look forward to, the resurrection of the church and what that means in the translation of our bodies from being dead to alive. It's U2.0 made new. These two exciting things that are the same event for us, the rapture, the resurrection, are both portrayed as undesirable things the way the culture talks about them. Isn't that amazing? And it's not an accident, and um, I'm not just bashing pop culture. I'm just here to tell you that we're easily taken in, and the effect isn't cognitive. I'm not saying that, well, that's going to make the kids say that they don't want to be. No, it's just emotive. You get a bad feeling or a bad association in your feelings from these kinds of things, from the question of life after death. Life after death, the way that pop culture always gives it, is always a bad thing. Dorian Gray, however you do it, it's a monstrous thing. But what we have in Christ, that is the destiny of all who have him, is not monstrous, it's glorious. All right, this is the New American Standard of Isaiah 26. And we plan to get out of the introduction section of the notes tonight. But this is an expansion on what you have in your notes. In, verse, uh, in the King James, it says this way. The dead men shall live... Together with my dead body shall they arise. Boy, did they have to do some gymnastics to conclude that way. But I know why they translate that way. Awake and seeing ye that dwell in dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. And I probably should say herbs because this was an English translation by Englishmen. But, um, but this, is, this is the way the King James translated it. And if this is the most important verse on the resurrection in the Old Testament, as most scholars think it is, then um, this is a memory verse, the way it's been done. And King James is the, you know, it's the Bible of record everyone memorized. And so it was written for memory. And so there will be a lot of people that have it memorized this way. When the rabbis in the second century BC translated the Old Testament into Greek from Hebrew, they were doing something very helpful for us that God knew in advance they were going to do. They gave you the first King James. It was the Old Testament originally in Hebrew translated into the language everyone spoke into Greek. Koine Greek. And it's the same Greek, basically, as the New Testament would be written in. In fact, a lot of the, the people reading the New Testament scriptures are reading the Old Testament in this form that we call, I'm sorry for the long word, but it's Septuagint. Septuagint comes from the, the, the word for 70, because you had 72 translators, and there's a legend associated with it. And uh, we're not so worried about the legend. We have the the archaeological evidence of the manuscript transmission of this translation. And it's a very important document for understanding the Old Testament and understanding New Testament Greek. It is not inspired. It is a translation of the inspired text. But it is very helpful in textual criticism. Now, here's the interesting thing about the Septuagint, just for you who want to dial in just a little bit. If you don't want to dial in, take a few seconds. All right. The Septuagint translators are looking at a Hebrew document when they're translating it. 
or the groups are looking at, at, at the document over here. And these, these guys are working on Isaiah and they're looking at Isaiah's scroll. And that's its own testimony to manuscript tradition of the Hebrew text. What we have that's the most reliable, we call the Masoretic text. And it's been really reinforced by the discoveries of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's one uh, kind of conglomerate tradition of Hebrew text. But there are other traditions. And what the, the Germans called, what the, what, the, what the rabbis are looking at to translate the Septuagint, they call it the Forlaga. It's the thing that's in front of them that they're seeing. And we don't have a copy of that. But a lot of times when the Septuagint differs from the Hebrew, it's because we think that they're looking at a different manuscript. And why does that matter? Because we have to do textual criticism. Every translation of the Bible, they're making these kinds of decisions. So just look what happened when the rabbis, and sometimes they took liberties with the prophets, sometimes with the, 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 what they call the writings, the, the, the major prophets, they, they took some liberties with what uh, the translation would have been from, Hebrew, from, the, from the Hebrew. But I've translated this from the Greek. It says, they will rise the dead. That's looking pretty good so far in terms of the Hebrew order. And they will be roused those in the memories. Now, that might be an idiomatic use I haven't been able to run down for the word memory that means the, um, the corpses. But it says the memories. And they will be cheered, past the future, they will be cheered, those who are in the earth. So the idea could be that they're still in the earth, but they've, ra- they've raised, but they- they'll be cheered. For the dew from you is healing to them. And it's really explicit in Greek. Your dew is healing to them. Like there's somebody bringing water that heals them, that raises them. And you cannot get this out of the Masoretic Hebrew. They're looking at something else or they're just uh, giving you a fanciful paraphrase, which is also a possibility. But the earth from the ungodly will fall, it says. Does that mean the ungodly are lifted up and the, the dust is falling off of them? But that's what it says the earth from the ungodly will in the future fall. What I'm trying to show you is that whatever language you look at this in, it's hard to translate. It's either it's hard in Greek to understand exactly what he's trying to say. It's also hard in the Masoretic text of the Hebrew. Wycliffe did it this way, probably from the Vulgate. I don't know Latin, so I can't show you the Vulgate and translate it. <sighs> Lion, lion, shall be thy, shall thy dead. My slain men shall again rise. This must be living. See, living, the U is a V, living. Shall be, shall thy dead. My slain men shall again rise. Beth waked, that's both waked, and praiseth ye that dwelling in ponder. Praiseth ye, this is you, and pray, this is praise, and I don't know what ponder is. But Middle English, this reminds us of something. This doesn't look very much like English to us. Remember, English is a Germanic language with French highlights because of 1066. And this was written after 1066. This was translated uh, in the 13th For the dew of light, thy dew. That's actually almost exactly what it says in Hebrew. And he brought it. I mean, if he's using the Vulgate, then the Vulgate's word for word Hebrew, which I can't confirm. And the, I could do it if I had time to take the afternoon and look, you know, use my Latin dictionary all day, but I can't. 
And the land of, I don't know what, Iontus, I, I can't figure that one out. Thou shalt draw down into falling. <laughs> so um, this is a hard verse. And, and see, I think Satan's involved because it's not a, it's a poetic verse. It's a challenging verse. It's not the clearest thing to translate. It's nothing like the clarity of John 3.16 or something. And so for the scholars to say, well, this is the only one that's about the resurrection, I think that is an attack on the doctrine of the resurrection, right? It's poetry. And he, he, Isaiah does mean what he means. We could continue to work this in six or seven more hours of, of thinking through it together, um, uh, but we're not. We're not. We're going to work on the doctrine in general. The ESV, which everyone has bought because they, they, I think the reason ESV has become so prolific is that the people gave it away. Uh, it was just like they saturated the market with it. I was like, oh, well, that's a, that's a newer translation, and it's an update from the NIV. At least it's better than, and it's much better than NIV. So we'll just use that for our, our church Bible. And I think it was the, it was the Bon Marche approach to Bible translation. We said the cheapest one, uh, you know, like government contracts or something. And um, the reason I don't embrace the ESV is uh, actually an interesting story. The American Standard Version of 1901 was the result of the joint venture of the American and British evangelical scholars working together on the RSV. And uh, for a decade before they had, or more, they had worked together across the, the Atlantic Ocean to come up with the recommended amendations and, and improvements to the King James because of archaeological discoveries, grammatical features, things like this. And, um, and so the British basically rejected all of the American scholarship contributions, despite the fact that the state of American Bible-believing scholarship was far ahead spiritually of the British, in my opinion, in the 1880s and 90s. Nevertheless, the, um, the, the British rejected the American contributions and published the RSV without anything the Americans had provided. And because of contractual obligations, the American version wasn't produced until 1901, when whatever the, whatever the non-compete clause was when they could, could produce it. So the 1901 ASV is, okay, well, the British wouldn't play with us, is my summary of the story. And so we have the American Standard Version. The new American Standard Version is the update of that work that was the American scholarship in the dawn of American fundamentalism. And the ESV is a redo of the RSV. So I'm an American, and I'm a new American, and I'll stick with the new American standard. All right, thank you. So um, moving on. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is the dew of light, the dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Everybody translates this word as give birth to the dead, and that is a very challenging thing to do, and I'll show you why. This is a DJRT. I had a kid sitting next to me today. This is called homeschool. And he said, what's the DJRT? And that's the David Roseland translation. <clears throat> this is my effort to, uh, to bring it into English word for word. And the question immediately was, do you have the whole Bible done? And my answer is, no. Would you? No. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of garbage uh, homespun Bible translations out there that you could uh, read and then throw out because they're not very good. And this is not the, my objective is to translate a static Bible translation. My objective is to put something on the screen. I can show you how the Hebrew works. So in other words, my static translation wouldn't work for read, a read-through probably. But it is good for an explain-through or an exposition, which is what I'm doing. So they will live is the summary beginning of the uh, verbal thing in verse 19. Your, that's a, that's a singular, uh, your on the end, dead ones, the dead, plural, of you. So it means you're dead people. 
your dead ones. And so you can translate your dead. That's what that means in English. But it starts with a verb. They will live, your dead ones. And then we switch the order, and it's the word for corpse, carcass of a dead animal or corpse of a human being, um, with, in the Masoretic text, the singular first-person pronoun, my, cor- my corpse, which is how I translated it last time. And then I looked at, a little, I looked at the little text note, and the Syriac and the, um, the Targumim both have testimonies to this being the third plural pronoun, which fits with the verb. And so this is probably a scribal uh, boo-boo that we have the first-person pronoun. And so I've translated it with all the other translations that went with the Syriac um, and so that was probably the original, what, what the Syriac was translated from. And so it's their corpses will rise. And that's the verb kum right here, to rise. And it's in the third plural, which fits with a third plural, uh, their corpses. All right. So they will live, your dead ones, their corpses will rise. If I take the Bible as the details of Scripture and the words that are stated, that they matter, then I will conclude that this is talking about some sort of physical bodily coming up out of the ground. It's a coming up language. It's not the rapture. I was talking about the rapture earlier. I don't believe this is the rapture. I think this is talking about, um, actually, I'm with John Walvert on this. If you read what he wrote in various writings about this, I think this is the resurrection of the Old Testament saints just prior to the millennial kingdom at the conclusion of the tribulation. And I think that because of the sequence of Daniel chapter 12, verse 1 to chapter 12, verse 2, as I'll show you eventually in this study. So, but, but what Isaiah says here is they'll live your dead ones will live, your cor- their corpses will rise. And then he addresses them, wake up and cry out in two um, second person imperatives, because in Hebrew, the imperative is just like English, second person always. And cry out, you who lie in afar, in the dust. So notice that just four words, and I'm using all of these words in English in this third line to translate four Hebrew words. Hebrew is very terse. You've got a lot of things that are implied in all the words. But two, two commands. Wake up and cry out, you who lie in the dust. Now, cry out could mean we're having a party. Rejoice. Cry out with joy. And that's how all the translators are paraphrasing. They're all interpreting that the cry out is a, a shout of joy. And they're probably right. But one thing you have to conclude for sure is they're alive. These dead people are crying out for joy. Crying out, uh, having been dead. All right. Now, this is the tough part. We talked about it last time a little bit. For tall, tall is dew. It's an old word. It's from back in Genesis when the, the dew was watering the, the plants before the first rain. There was a dew that would come up and water all the plants. For dew um, of light, of lights. And so we think it's the morning because that fits. The, the sun comes up, there's dew on the, on the plants. That's we call it morning dew. That's, so dew of the light, um, your dew. It doesn't say will be. It just says your dew. The, the, the moisture on the plants in the morning is your moisture. Okay, what? They're in the dry dust and their bodies are dead. And now they're wet. They're alive. There's, there's life. There's vibrance. I think that's the idea. Dew is, is used a lot through the prophets to reference life. And Ezekiel 37 is a parallel passage that talks about the same event, the resurrection of Israel, the saints of Israel to enter into the kingdom. The dry bones rise up and they get muscles and sinew and, and, they're, they're, and they're alive again, having been just dried out husks. 
But anyway, the dew of the morning light would be your dew. And this is the hardest part. And earth, the Rephaim, earth, departed spirits will cause to fall. Earth, departed spirits will cause to fall. Needs to be interpreted. And I interpret it this way. Earth to the departed spirits will give birth. One of the possible meanings of the hifil from Paul is to give birth to, like fall. And notice the imagery. He's a poet and he's doing a little bit of a word picture. There's all this rising up. There's rising up in, of the, of the, the um, corpses and, the, and the, the getting up. And now there's falling down. But this falling down is either uh, rejection, some sort of they're going to hell, or that it's the giving of birth and the use of causing to fall in the sense of giving birth. And this would be the one place the Hebrew scholars say this word is used that way. So I'm suspicious of the birth-giving interpretation, but I don't know of a better way to understand it. And that's what everybody's kind of done. So the earth is giving birth to these Rephaim. And remember earlier in the passage we read that the Rephaim won't live. And now, in God's grace and God's timing, they will. Rephaim, uh, from the word to mean weak, the weak ones, but it's weakly manifested, translated rightly shades, or ghosts, or departed spirits. That's uh, not a real common word we have, but it's the word used here for people that have died. And so notice we have the addressing of their physical body, their corpse, their, their bodies, the, the, the dead ones will live, and then the departed spirits, their immaterial coming back into the, into the physical. And so, um, boy, lots of questions we could ask about the verse. And if this is the one verse, then we got a problem. But my point in this study is that it's not the one verse. So the question, Roman numeral one, should we expect resurrection in the Old Testament? Skip to the conclusion. It's in bold on the back of your sheet about a third of the way down. The answer is yes. The conclusion of Roman numeral one is yes, you should expect the resurrection to be taught in the Old Testament if you love Jesus. If you believe in Jesus, if you think Jesus is being uh, correctly represented in the New Testament, if you believe in the New Testament, then yes, you should believe that resurrection is taught in the Old Testament. And that is okay if that's your starting point. This is um, one thing we can absolutely be certain of. You can absolutely be certain that the Old Testament writers believed and wrote about the resurrection because Jesus said they did. And there are lots of theories we can have about how to read the Bible. One of the key ones is, what did Jesus think? And what does he think we should get from it? And if I don't get what he says, then I need to go think about how I'm doing it. And I'll summarize with you, the way Jesus read the scriptures is that the author intended to say what he meant. And he wanted you to get his meaning that he had in mind. And the author is in control of his meaning. And the authors were led along by the Holy Spirit, as Peter tells us. Peter, the apostle of Christ. And so we read the Bible as Jesus directs with a plain sense. But that plain sense is nuanced, and Jesus teaches us to be good theologians by pushing the implications. All right, so let's talk about the resurrection in the Old Testament. The first thing you want to do is start with your New Testament and make sure we get a check on the way we're reading the Old Testament because the Hebrew scholar that says only Isaiah 26, 19 is your only verse, he has a problem with Jesus. And they do. They'll say, well, they're reading the Bible differently than we do. They, they read their Old Testament differently. And I contend with Abner Chow, we don't read the Bible differently than the Old Testament writers read their prior text or the New Testament writers read the Old Testament. Jesus rebukes the Sadducees and we'll go to Matthew 22 and pick up a story. See how this is going to be a fun study? Now we get to read a story. Matthew 22. 
oh, I just love the Bible. We just went from hard Hebrew poetry, and I made you see a little bit of the slog. And you're like, that's a mess. Well, that's that's textual criticism. And now we're going to read a story. And it's so fun to see what Jesus says when he's rebuking people. Matthew 22, we've just had render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. My analog Bibles give me fits. Okay. On that day, um, when we had the, the conversation about render to Caesar, some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus and questioned him. So the Sadducees are the people in charge of the temple ministry. They're not part of the synagogue system that is run by the Pharisees. And so you have these two parties, broadly speaking, of leadership in Israel um, in the religious world. You had the Sadducees that were of a certain sect that were part of the temple ministry generally. And you had the Pharisees that are throughout the diaspora through the Roman world where Paul, every time he goes to a synagogue, he, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, is going to the synagogue system throughout that diaspora. And they're both operative in Jerusalem in the second temple period here. And so he's addressing this party that deny the resurrection. They had an anti-supernatural bent in their theology and their practice, and it explains how they can have uh, money changers in the temple and make our Father's house a, a den of, uh, of thieves or a, a place of business. Uh, there's really a problem of the fear of the Lord for these people. They came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, If a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is leveret marriage, and it's a real challenge to us because we are hung up on the romantic and the individualistic, and they are hung up on the transmission of inheritance and the dynastic. And so just have to understand the, the difference in culture here on this doctrine of leveret marriage. Everyone knows the most dramatic place and romantic place leveret marriage is talked about is the book of Ruth. Boaz is the kinsman redeemer to the, 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 the kinsman um, whose wife was still alive, who had, the man who had died, and he is taking Ruth as uh, a leveret. All right. So we're going to start, Lord, with Deuteronomy 25. Uh, teacher, they call him, teacher. Um, and what they're doing is the typical argue with the other guy and ask a question that he can't answer. The way you win a fight when, in Rabbi Kung Fu is you ask a question they can't answer. And so they've, they've quoted the scripture, and now they're going to say, we're going to beat you down on the doctrine of resurrection. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died in the, I almost see him kind of putting scare quotes, in the resurrection, because they don't believe in it. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. So we gotcha. She's a woman with seven husbands in the resurrection. Gotcha, Jesus. It's uh, seven brothers for one bride, okay, is what they're suggesting. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. Now, Jesus calls the scriptures here. What does he mean by the scriptures? Is he talking about the book of Matthew that we're reading? He has to be talking about the Tanakh, 
the Torah, the Navi'im, the Ketuvim, the, that's the, the law and the prophets and the writings. And, and the way we count them are 39 books of the Old Testament. That's what he means by the scriptures. You don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. Now notice the two things put together. This is its own little devotion. The scriptures revealing God or the power of God who has been revealed by the scriptures. You don't know the channel of revelation to know God, and so you don't know the God and his attribute that goes that we become aware of through that channel. Th- this would not be a problem for God, in other words, and you don't understand uh, the, the, what, what the word says. Jesus says, by explanation in verse 30, for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now this verse has been taken by some to mean that we become angels, that somehow in the resurrection we sprout wings, which is a glamorous thought for some. Okay, just imagine floating around with your little wings. Um, I would want to be a seraph because you get the six wings and you get to cover your face with two and your feet with two and with two you fly and you use your voice to proclaim God's glory in the throne room of heaven. And seraph means to burn, so they're the burning ones, really what that means. I would love to be one of those. I don't want to be a haruv because he's got four faces and he's got a, a man's face and a lion's face and an eagle's face and an ox's face in um, Ezekiel 1. But in Ezekiel 10, it doesn't say ox, it says a cherub's face, a haruv. So the cherub is a, is a, a live. The King James, I think, in one place calls them beasts, living, be, living creatures or beasts. And I, that, that is some science fiction sounding stuff. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. But when we see this creature, we're going to say, oh, that's what exactly what Ezekiel said he saw. And, um, and I don't actually want to be any of the angelic creatures because God made me in his image and he didn't make the angels in his image. I think he made the animals in the image of the angels. He made us in his own image. And we are designed to rule. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 that, he, um, that we will rule, we will judge the angels. So why, why are you taking each other to court among the unbelievers? Don't you know you find a right, righteous man among you can judge between you? Don't you know you're going to judge the angels? We are not going to be angels in heaven in any way. We are a higher order of creation in an eternal sense because we are in Christ and we're going to be the bride and body of Christ. And, um, and that's an important distinction to make. So no, we don't become angels. He says they're like angels and that we're not given a marriage in heaven. Jesus then says in verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? He went, look at this, he went right to the core of their reasoning. He didn't, he's not going to answer a fool according to his folly. He's going to go straight to what they really want to talk about and, and address it. You want to talk resurrection, I know. So let's talk resurrection. That's what he's doing. I love it when Jesus cuts to the chase, don't you? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He said that. And where did he say that? Well, the Sadducees do recognize Moses' writings. They just quoted Moses. So Jesus now quotes Moses correctly in Exodus 3.6. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. So there has to be a sense in which the I am, who is the God of Abraham is the God of the living, though Abraham has died. See, this is Jesus teaching you theologians to read the implication. Abraham has to be resurrected. Isaac has to be resurrected. This is the God of the living, and they have died. If he's the God of the living and he's their God, then the logic dictates on the very basic fundamental one plus one is two level 
that they have to come back to life because he's the God of the living and he's their God. That's the, that's the logic Jesus is presenting. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. He just said one plus one is two. He just said, now watch the logic. I don't know if, I, I don't know if you've caught, it's, it's more basic than you probably think. If you're not getting this, if, if you do get this, forgive me. But if, you, if this is like something that you haven't thought through, it's so helpful. Jesus is quoting God in Exodus 3, 6. Abraham's long dead. Isaac's long dead. Jacob's long dead by Exodus 3 when Moses writes. And God tells Moses, I am the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. Jesus takes that statement that he is this and compares it with the fact that he is the God of the living and not of the dead. And if these two statements are true, then there is going to have to be a resurrection of these dead ones. Because God is not the God of the dead, he's the the God of the living. And so you could say, well, he's the God of the temporarily dead. He's the God of those that are asleep, as Paul says. It's a temporary state. To us, it's the most permanent thing in the world, this permanent separation of this frame of life when we lose someone, when they die. But we put them in the cemetery. We put them in the cemetery. Everybody knows what cemetery means, right? I mean, we're speaking Greek at this point. Koimaomai, where we get the word cemetery, means to sleep. We're saying the dormitory. We're saying they're, they're over there asleep. And not, no, we don't mean soul sleep. We mean that the separation that we are enduring for the rest of our natural lives here in this frame, this short time of life, and a drop of the bucket of eternity, for the next decades that I'm still on this earth and they're separated, we're apart. But it's a temporary arrangement. That's why we say sleep. And that's why historically Christians have buried in anticipation of resurrection. It doesn't matter how you are buried. It doesn't matter what happens to your body. It can't because all those Christians, all those believers and unbelievers who have died at sea and their bodies are completely disintegrated by the natural processes, they are going to be resurrected, some to life and some to death. But in Matthew 22, Jesus teaches the resurrection and, def- and insists that there has to be the resurrection of the Old Testament uh, uh, patriarchs. Luke 20 is uh, the identical, not the identical, but the, the account in Luke's writing. In Luke chapter 20, verse 27, there came to him some of the Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. They questioned him saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife and he's childless, his brother should marry the wife, raise up children to his brother. Deuteronomy 25, <laughs> they quoted in, in Luke's writing too. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second. Um, and finally the woman died also, verse 32, and in the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For the seven had married her, and Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. Interesting comparison, the way Jesus talks about uh, those that are not married. For they cannot even die anymore because they are like angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, which is your real problem with the doctrine, as he says, that they're raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The implication of God saying that to Moses is that 
there will be a resurrection of these because he's not the God of the dead. And so Jesus pushes the, the logic in Luke's writing as well. He's not the God of the dead, but the living for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said, teacher, you have spoken well, for they did not have courage to question him any longer about anything. So who won the rabbi Kung Fu? Well, Jesus shut them up. They don't have anything else. To know. You've exhausted our questions. And so we have to say that um, we really don't want to argue with Moses. And so we'll, um, we don't have a way to come back at you right now. And so, so Jesus rebukes the Sadducees and insists that the Pentateuch, that Moses is implying resurrection. Jesus rebukes the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and we don't think of this as a rebuke, but if you, this is a neat thing. If you take your Bible and take like, turn like two pages to Luke 24, I know we're taking our, our gospel stories out of context in their design in Luke, but, um, but for this uh, study, this is something that's easy to see. This is the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus that meet Jesus and don't recognize him. He's a stranger to them, and he teaches them what, the, what the, the Old Testament teaches concerning the Christ. And what happens in uh, 24 verses 25 and 26 would be kind of our focus when Jesus rebukes them. So you know, might know the story. We do it a lot of times on Resurrection Sunday. This happened on the Sunday of the resurrection. It's Luke's longest resurrection story in his gospel. And only Luke tells us this story of these disciples of Jesus, not of the twelve who are on this road going to Emmaus and sad that they've lost their Savior, not aware or expecting the resurrection. In verse 17, for example, verse 24, Jesus said to them, What are these words that you are exchanging with one another as you're walking? And they stood still looking sad. One Cleopas answered and said to him, Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem unaware of the things which have happened here in these days? What things? And they said to him, these things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word in the sight of God and all the people. I mean, he's close to describing who this one is, right? They don't really understand who he is, but that's, that's kind of the way it worked. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to the sinners of death and crucified him. We were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, it's the third day since these things happened. Which day was it? Not the fourth day. After 72 hours on the fourth day, it's the third day. It's on the third day. It says it 12 times in the New Testament for those that struggle with when Jesus was raised. It's got to be three days and three nights in the ground. It doesn't have to be three days and three nights in the ground. It has to be the way Jews would count three days and three nights, which is a part of a day or a night, would count. And so it's, it's not 72 hours. It's on the third day. So we're right to celebrate the first day of the week, Sunday. And we also celebrate the the, the um Sixth day of the week, Friday, the day he was crucified. But also some women among us amazed us. When they were at the tomb early in the morning, they did not find his body. They came saying they had also seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. So we have eyewitness testimony to the empty tomb and angels from heaven saying he is alive. Now the story of Jesus' earthly life begins with angels saying this is going to happen. And what do the people do that get it right with the angels? They believe what God's messengers say. Now, we have eyewitnesses from the angels, listening to what the angels said, who also saw the evidence, the physical evidence of the empty tomb. And they have borne witness, these ladies, to these men. And what have the men done with this information? They have pondered these things in their hearts. They have not received the joy of the news of the resurrection of the Savior. See, we were hoping he was the one to redeem Israel. But, but, but he's, I mean, he died. 
But there's an interesting story if you're interested. I mean, the scuttlebutt is that some crazy ladies think he rose. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just exactly as the women also had said, but him they do not see. This is the, the foot race between uh, Peter and John. They go and see, and it's empty. And Jesus said to them, O foolish men and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. That is not very Resurrection Sunday-ish, is it? He, he rebukes them. It's a correction of his disciples. You are slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. He's again talking about the Old Testament. Was it not necessary for the Christ, that's Greek, Mashiach, anointed one in Hebrew, for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? And, and so, oh, that's harsh. But look what happens. He brings us to, our, to ourselves. He shows us our lack. He shows you, you haven't trusted as you should. You didn't listen. You're behind the power curve. You're not where you need to be. And you and I can, be, can do two things with that. We can skip to arrogance and say, well, that's not nice to me. And I feel my little snowflake self is being melted. Or we can rise to the occasion and say, thank you for the correction. Because if you're right and I'm wrong, then I'd like to change and get to be right. That's what you do with rebuke and correction. So he says, I'm foolish because I didn't pay attention to the Bible. I guess I need to change and start paying attention to the Bible. And then he doesn't just give them a problem. He provides the solution as God does in his grace. Then beginning with Moses, with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. The best Bible study of the Old Testament ever taught is summarized in Luke 24, 27. I mean, on planet Earth. 24, 27, we get a summary he taught him all that it says about him. He says, this is about the Christ, and he's the Christ himself, and this is about the Christ. They still don't know who's talking. They're just like, whoa, what a Bible teacher. I'm, I believe there's video of this. I want to see this. And he said to them in verse 46, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead on the third day. And repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You're witnesses of these things. This is the great commission part of the story on the road to Emmaus. This is the last commissioning words that Luke gives of Jesus. So we're supposed to think that if we don't believe in the resurrection of the Messiah specifically, and what that means for all of his, if we're not sufficiently messianic that we're believing in the resurrection after reading the Tanakh, the Old Testament, then we are foolish, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have said. So see, that's why that bold-faced conclusion at the end of Roman numeral one, yes, we're supposed to expect that the Old Testament teaches the resurrection. And Paul's preaching would be a good place for us to pick it up next time. You can read ahead in Acts 26 and especially chapter 13 and 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul takes an Old Testament passage and says this proves that Jesus is the one that was prophesied. He uses Psalm 1610 to demonstrate that Jesus is the Messiah to Israel, uh, to Jews in Pisidian Antioch. And in Acts 23.6, he says that this is what we should expect concerning 
um, believers, that there's not just the Messiah be resurrected, but that believers would be resurrected. So you could see how this doctrine is developed if we're going to be faithful to the New Testament. One of the tenets we have to believe is that the Old Testament teaches the resurrection. What do you do with this doctrine of the resurrection? Well, you don't just say, well, we got through, you know, an eighth of the notes, right? You don't say, well, um, there's a lot of reading left to do. We're not just going through material. What do you do with this doctrine of the resurrection? Well, the more we learn of it and the more we hear of it, the more it should be solidified in our thinking and our consciences and our expectations. This is a, a, a matter for weighing the essentials versus the non-essentials. We teach as best we can, as God has provided the whole counsel of God's word. And leveret marriage for national Israel, protecting uh, familial um, uh, inheritance rights is an important doctrine. The Bible teaches it. But the resurrection is an infinitely more important doctrine. Remember the resurrection when you're struggling with the tough stuff. When you're facing the question of, I don't want to respond to this situation the way I should. I want to be angry. I feel better about being angry right now. And I don't care what God thinks about it. Hey, the resurrection is coming. And with that, for every believer, the judgment seat of Christ. The decisions we make now have eternal consequences. And you will know that very well the moment you are in a resurrection body face to face with the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection is certain because the tomb was empty and more than 500 eyewitnesses saw the Lord Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory. And I can believe those eyewitnesses because some of them have written in the inspiration of the Spirit of God to tell us exactly who he is and what he's about. And that's the Gospels. And this is life. The promise, first of all, of the resurrection of Christ, the first fruits, and then the promise of your resurrection to be like him. When you see Jesus Christ, the Apostle John says, you will be as he is. Our Father, we thank you for this truth, this basic, this fundamental truth that undergirds our entire worldview. And Father, we repent inasmuch as it hasn't undergirded our worldview, as we haven't thought in terms of the resurrection of Christ and the security that means for us, that even if the worst thing happens, should we die physically, we're promised a resurrection, to be raised from the dead into resurrection glory, to receive eternity with your Son, to be evaluated and given responsibilities in this administration of his coming kingdom. Father, help us live our lives with this perspective. It's so easy to slip out of this perspective that so strengthens us and and equips us to be relaxed, to be uh, ready for whatever you bring to us as we trust you. Father, strengthen our faith, as Jack prayed earlier, that we would love you in light of this truth of the resurrected uh, Savior and the promise of our resurrection. In Christ's name, amen.